Hey, Jen, we need to sell our home. Do you know a great agent? I do. We just sold with a local Redfin agent. It was awesome. And we paid a 1% listing fee because we bought our new home with Redfin, too. Wow, 1%. Are Redfin agents full service? Totally. Our Redfin agent did it all, and we sold for thousands more than the home next door. I'll check out Redfin today. 1% listing fee when purchasing with Redfin subject to minimums, terms, and conditions. Does not include buyer's agent commission. Learn more at Redfin.com or call 844-759-7732. All right. Well, my guest today is Tahira Monique Brown, and she is all about helping others, particularly survivors of domestic abuse. She has created a talk show, Living True and True Living, which looks at real people, real stories, and real issues. That said, Tahira's story is difficult to describe, except that it would make even the chillingest movie thriller cringe on its heels her story is more than her past it's about the present and her future which is where the production company darkness to light films has birthed its name she is also the author of annihilator of innocence and hunger pains in our heads i cannot tell you how excited i am to have you here (laughs) thank you thank you for being here you're so welcome. You're so welcome. I look forward to this. So your story really begins back in childhood. Was yes. there anyone there for you when you were younger? When I was younger, um, people didn't really talk to you. Children were to be seen and not heard. And it was something, if there was discovery, uh, family members talked among themselves and if you're the child that is the victim, you hear this and, <clears throat> excuse me, you think it's your fault. You know, and I was five years old when I was first uh, uh, molested. And when you're that young, you don't understand what's happening to you. You don't understand what the person's done to you. All you know is you've been hurt. And no one describes to you the essence of this pain. So you're hearing other people pointing at you and saying, yes, he did that to her. And then they talk about it. And but no one. But the the, the one thing I do remember is my grandmother coming and patting me. And that was her way of comforting me. But I didn't understand, you know, why this adult person would want to hurt me and why the adult persons didn't talk to me about it to make sure I could prepare myself if it ever happens again. And it, and it did happen again. But I recognized the sign that it was coming. I was like, okay, this is going to happen to me again. Uh, but, but that one I did tell. I did tell someone. So when did it stop? Like when did you, when were you able to get out of that situation? Well, I'm going to tell you, um, the, the people that has been the most vocal in my life and helping me has been men. You know, it was my stepfather. Uh, he picked up, he noticed uh I reacted to something one day that was said in the house. And he said, he called me over and says, has someone touched you? Has someone messed with you? And I told him. And um, of course, everything went to, went to, went to, excuse my French hell after that. And I'm, you know, now I'm a, I'm a, I'm an older girl. I'm 11 or 12. And um, I'm watching them react. And I'm like, you know, I'm just telling what happened to me. And because he asked me, you know, and um, 
I, I was able to see that someone would fight for me. Mm-hmm. But since it was in the family, you know, of course, you're the one that's being victimized by everyone else because everybody doesn't believe it happened to you. So you have to know in your heart and soul who you are. So I picked that moment to say, I know who I am. I know the truth, you know, and I think my I was in my heart thankful that my stepfather even inquired and, and tried to help to to quench it, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, a child has to find their way through the avenues of opinions of people. Mm-hmm. Because once it comes out, you know, just because you're a child, I don't think people are going to be merciful. No, they're not. True mm-hmm. sure that. Mm-hmm. So many of us can relate to how our past experiences can play in our adult choices. And I know for me, particularly, if if you didn't see, um, uh, I mean, it's not my parents were together for for you know, till they're till the end. Right. But it didn't feel like a very happy relationship. Sometimes they did things <laughs> together sometimes, but it was like they fought like tooth and nail. But, <laughs> but that impacted how I chose men in my life too, at that time until you until I healed from that. But how did that impact you choosing your first husband? All that stuff you went through? Well, I didn't choose my first husband. That was like a conversation between my mom and him. And Ooh. I was angry about that. I was angry that I could not make a choice on, you know, whether I wanted to be in a marriage or not. And um, and it was even throughout my whole marriage and the time that my mother was alive, it was like if there was an issue, he would go to her and she would back him. And I'm back and I'm still in the same situation. I'm still in the same boat. Even though other family members saw the domestic violence, saw the abuse, it was it was what I would say, it seemed almost like a normal thing. It's when you married, you stayed in the marriage, no matter what. But I didn't believe that. Um, so I was constantly trying to find a way out of that marriage. And I didn't want my children to be raised up seeing me get beaten uh, and all that. So I finally... Um, Worked on getting a divorce, but even through the divorce proceedings, the judge says, you know, you got to stay with them this much, this amount of time mm-hmm. to see if you're really going to leave. You know, at that time, now you're being more victimized because now you got the justice system saying we're on the side of the man. And so, you know, you're being even more, it's like it, it was ramped up a bit. Now, I'm going to make this clear. Uh, over time, my children's father and I, we became friends. And my children's father and my husband I'm married to now are excellent friends. They're great friends. They're almost like brothers. And that's a beautiful thing to have happen. But it, it happened over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there can be some grace. But sometimes you're just not supposed to be behind closed doors together. And I fought not to be behind closed doors with someone that was going to beat me. Um, you know, of course, we're going to talk about the next situation later. But yeah, but yeah. I chose. I fought my way out. I took the abuse out and I meant to stay out. Um, how long was it after that when the unthinkable happened? It was several years because, you know, my children's father was back and forth. And I'm going to tell you, always the women don't always make a, the, the decision to go back with a man. A man just moves in on her. And, you know, you don't have a system to help you fight. Are those his kids? And you're like, I got a new house on my own. He wasn't there. But then, you know, you got to fight again to try to get him out. So that was kind of the back and forth situation. But once I knew that I knew that it was over and I thought it was over, I think about a year later is when I realized, you know, a, a stalker had been stalking me on my job 
And there was a short time that I noticed that he was stalking me, but he had been stalking me for months. And only God knows how long that had been. Uh, and then started, he began his uh, attack on me on my job. And um, when I left my job, and I don't, I don't want to go into that too deep right now. I want to focus on the domestic violence situation. And one of the things I know we talked earlier was about, you know, you look at somebody's lifestyle and say, oh, well, you know, they ended up in a domestic violence situation because they didn't have mm -hmm. a good household. Blah, blah, blah. That's not true. Sometimes children are raised up in a beautiful, loving, watch beautiful, loving relationships. They tell themselves, when I get married, I want to marry somebody just like my dad. I want to marry somebody just like my mom. And you meet a guy or you meet a woman and they, they have all you have told them everything you want. So they mimic it. So when you finally get behind closed doors, next thing you know, I don't know this person. This person is a complete stranger to me. And now you're being abused and your family may not really know how to help pull you out. Or you may have shame of letting them know you're being abused, letting your friends know you're being abused. So sometimes by the time the bruises start showing up, they start giving excuses. Oh, I hit my head against the wall or, oh, I fell down the stairs or, oh, I this and that. And a lot of them end up in the grave before the real truth comes out because they are ashamed to let these loving family relationships they left in the past know the hell that they're catching in their future, in their lives. So and I don't think- That's yeah, I think psychologically people want to express that because it seems to be the majority, but there are some people that come from loving relationships that ends up in hell. And it's not their fault that they end up in hell, but they don't know what to look for. And uh, people are actors. They, they act from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. So you, if you're calling the middle of a fantastic actor that knows just how to act around your friends, know just how to act around your family, but at home he's telling you, you better not tell anybody. If you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you. He's a pillar of society. He's a pastor or he's a, you know, uh, a politician or whatever, a police officer. But you're getting the same person that you want to look at to help you is the same person that's abusing you behind closed doors. Tell me, how do you go about letting someone know what you're dealing with? And yeah. they listen to you the first time, because sometimes you don't have a second time. When I reached out and I let my sister know that I was being that there was danger, I told her I don't have time to tell you a long story. All I know, if anything happens to me, you know, take my children. That's all I ask. Take my children. Did anything happen to me? Because I knew to get out of that hostage situation, I may not make it. Wow. And and so so did the people around you? I mean, you were still going to work. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing about domestic abuse. You are do, living a normal life. It's people don't There's know. Normal you can. Even as a hospital. So, people, so did people know him or did your family know this man? Like, or did he act My like children, your husband? This guy that uh, took me as a hostage uh, forced me to marry him at city at uh, the Jeff Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta. Uh, and people were saying, you know, why is that old man with that young lady? And he was wearing a collar, a pastor's collar. Did he, you know, he mimicked a, a pastor. They just let him go by and he had weapons. And they let him go on down past the weapon stalls to the justice of the peace. And the justice of the peace says, you, you know, all your paperwork isn't here. So he promised we'll get the paperwork to you. And the man married us. Uh, manipulation, manipulation, they're master manipulators. So yes. there are some just cold blooded going to do what they're going to do, but some get a bigger joy out of manipulating people and tricking people and making people feel like they're the best thing to slice bread. But once they ever discovered that you met the worst enemy of your life, True. The, the table will flip. 
And, and the thing that drives me insane, and I, I once wrote a, an op-ed about this, um, the blame the victim. And it was di more difficult back in the 80s and 70s. I mean, the laws just weren't there. The battered women's syndrome law only came in, what, early 90s or something like yeah. that? Yes. Um, and I was, I was uh, when my situation took place, the lawyer that represented my case, J. Tom Morgan, was all about ending domestic violence and victimization. And I, I lucked up on having this lawyer represent my child uh, when we was going through the, the, the crisis. Then the first crisis was the hostage for, for two years. Then the next crisis was court case going through that for two more years, watching my daughter go through being on the stand for two years. Um, but J. Tom Morgan's whole calling at that time was to bring attention to children being able to testify because uh, the court system can be brutal on kids. Uh, and for my daughter to have endured that, it's unthinkable to imagine that a child could be on a stand day after day against a perpetrator, looking that perpetrator in the eye and testify. Wow. Very traumatic. Mm -hmm. Very, very much so. So I used to describe, uh, I mean, every situation, and I'm sure it's there are some similarities. I mean, we see it, we see them portrayed in the movies as well, where mm -hmm. one wrong move, one the toast is not perfect, or one thing sets them off. They could be silent. The kids are silent. If they drop something, they just like freak out. Yeah. I I kind of liken that. I try to describe that to people on how that that enveloping fear and what that's like it's like walking in a vietnam forest during the war and you're sifting through that elephant grass you can't see the enemy on either side of you you don't know where they are but you know they're out there and one wrong move you can step on a landmine or somebody can shoot you that's how i feel is a good description of domestic abuse what what would you add to that well, you know, domestic abuse is just like when I was a hostage. You know, you're a hostage behind your own closed doors uh, with someone that says they love you. And, uh, you know, I always tell people the hardest people to save are the ones that are in love, that love their abusers. And the more you go in and try to save them, not only are you trying to save them, but they are also trying to save their abusers. And and sometimes that's more than one way is because their abusers are the ones that pay the bills, you know, they lose their home, uh, their kids might be taken from them. There's a whole lot of things, a lot of fear that's been built up over time that that person is trying to save themselves and their children and their home and their lifestyle. Sometimes it's a lifestyle they've gotten used to. They can't imagine going, leaving someone and now probably being on the street, you know, and losing all that ambience that came with that name. Or even the poorest of the poorest people, you see people love, you know, in the, living on a tent under a bridge, living on fear of leaving that person, no matter how dire it is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not, I, you know, I try to look at this full circle and not try to call out any particular reason why a person became a victim, because that do set up people to be saying, oh, that person's not a victim because she's living in a million dollar house. She's driving a Lamborghini or, you know, he's this and that and dither. But at the end of the day, when they're standing over the grave, they're saying, I wish I'd done something. I wish that I let her, giving her a voice or him a voice because women kill too. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I wish I had given him or her a voice so that they could have talked to someone. Maybe we could have helped. 
but it's a little too late to have when a person is no longer here with you. It is. Usually when you leave or you try to leave, that is the most dangerous moment. Um, Not only for the victim, but also the victim's friends and family. Because the victimizer try to make sure he knows everybody you love and and close to. So, you know, the victim is caught up between a rock and a hard place of not only trying to protect themselves, protect their children inside the house, but to protect their mom and dad, protect their best friends. And, And this is another thing I dealt with as a hostage is people coming in. Uh, and even when as a domestic violence survivor, is people coming inside your house and saying their two cents and leaving. If you hit her, you know, if you do this to her or him, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna do this. But you're leaving them there with them saying, damn, this is for them saying that. Damn, this is for them saying, you know, you're sitting there like, please just leave my house, you know, just yeah. get out because you're making it worse for me because you're going home. You're going home to your security and you're leaving me with this person. You just threatened. You know, and they looking at you like, I'm sitting here with a gun behind my back. You're too stupid to know that. So they're laughing in their heart, in their mind about you standing in your in that doorway. Hi, it's Jonathan Cotton with the Good Feet Store. And I've shared before how I love an organization called TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Recently, we invited some TAPS family members who had lost a military loved one to have dinner with us. As we listened to their stories, I was reminded again of how the loss of a military loved one is such a devastating experience. Not only is the loved one gone, but often they lose their military community, and sometimes an entire lifestyle. My heart was sad over their grief, yet my spirit was inspired by their courage. Then to top it off, I was amazed at their graciousness as they thanked us for just listening. At the Goodfeet Store, we love helping you get out of pain and back into the life you love, and we love supporting the work of TAPS. Come in today for your free fitting and test walk and ask any of our team members why TAPS is an organization that every American can support. Visit goodfeet.com for the location nearest you. Talking about what you're going to come back and do. <laughs> and it's, it's sometimes the interference of others just makes it more dangerous for a victim. If you're not going in to take that victim out, uh, and, and take them to a secure place. Don't stand there in that house because they don't have time to argue a case with you. They don't have time to explain. Sometimes when a victim comes and say, I need help, they don't have time to explain a story to you. They just want you to know they need help. Will you be there for them? Uh, and sometimes when you do go and ask for help, a person want to know, well, why you say that? And why did come this? And, 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 you know, and I don't think he'll do that to you. And I don't think that and you'll say, all I'm asking for is help. Uh, but do you remember now, a lot of times a victim want to leave a victimizer. Your own family might love the victimizer. Mm-hmm. And because they think he's the yeah. greatest thing to slice bread, you know. And so <laughs> how do you go to mom and dad and say, I need help from someone they love? Yeah. And and the guy's acting all sweet to them, you know, taking them out bowling and going football games and everything like that. So a victim situations are different in so many ways until it's very hard to look inside that book. And, and know how to save them unless they realize that there is someone on the other side that will really help them. And there's the other aspect, too, where people will complain about, well, why does she keep going back to him? Well, fear. Fear is a motivating factor. Well, there's fear. And like I said, the other thing is love. And I think love is the most dangerous. Uh, but fear, yes. 
But love is the most dangerous because they're going to keep going back. It doesn't take much for that victimizer to say, come back to me, baby. You know I love you. And you'll see her and him packing up and going back or sneaking out and going back. And you, you're you doing the best you can to save them. Even if you see the, if, even if you see the danger, uh, I always say that the hardest person to save is that person that's in love with the victimizer. And I mean in love, where they'll take anything and everything off of that person. And you, you probably, you know, it's going to be very difficult to save them. They can be saved, but it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's like a cult. It's like uh, getting somebody out of a cult. Yes, yes. And who can do, who can say what love is? Love is very, if love was simple, we wouldn't have libraries all over the world trying to describe love. If, if, if hate was simple, we would have books all over the library with hate and love running on the same line. And then right in between all that is fear and trepidation, wars and everything else over those two words. You know, so I just I always tell people, you know, you know, look at the situation where you're trying to help people and try not to put yourself in too deep because you don't want this victimizer coming after you, knocking on your door and burying you because you're trying to take something from them that this is their possession. And you are their possession. And if you're a woman or a guy with children with someone that's very narcissistic and they see you as their possession, a psychotic or whatever you want to call it, whatever name therapists want to give it. Uh, if you're there, if their possession, you're, you're their possession and they're coming after you. So who was your North Star through all this? I was watching a show with Oprah Winfrey and uh, there was a guy on there that was in this interview and he said, uh, you know, um, victimizers are annihilators of innocence. And that's where my name on my book actually came from. But also he was also talking about people being on the other side that will help you. And my the victimizer that was holding me hostage was actually watching that show with me. And I could see the fear on his face, like who gonna be there to help you? And I could see, you know, I could read him. And from that moment on, I started just thinking and dreaming and visualizing myself out of my situation. I did not know how I was going to get out. But the choice I made to save my children, I almost lost my life. I ended up in a coma. I have to I have I have what I call get lost gas syndrome because I have amnesia from that choice. And I live with that. I call it reverse Alzheimer's <laughs> because I have to, I'm constantly learning things. But my children had to face the court system and the person that became my saving grace was a nurse that attended to me in the ICU unit. And uh, the doctor that was there went and pulled my daughter and separated her from the victimizer. My daughter's mind was on my son because he was still with him. But it began with her being tested that she'd been raped as well. And um, the rape trial began around the child. Then they brought in the, all the weapons and all the hostage stuff. Uh, but the person that I was saving grace and stuck with it and stayed with us. And we are friends to this day was our attorney, uh, J. Tom Morgan. He was the pillar. He was the pillar and his team, you know, when I was in the hospital uh, recovering from the coma, they was taking my kids back and forth to court, setting up the trial. Uh, the catalyst was one was the nurse, the doctor, and then the detectives that came into the hospital setting up a case because they got to build a case. No matter how dire it is, they got to build a case to build a case to even arrest him. Mm. Yeah. But my, yeah. my biggest saving grace was the most innocent person in the room was my brother, my brother, James. My brother, James, um, asked my daughter, 
what happened? You need to tell me what happened. But my ver my perpetrator thought he would be the last person oh. to do anything to save us. Because every one of them, they think there's a weak link. And my brother was considered the weak link. Oh, wow. And he was the strongest link. Well, you know, the victim has to do something. They yeah. have to do something. It's not going to work if you don't do anything. You know, unfortunately, the victim has to do something. And the last thing you think is your children have to continue to fight if you die. So how how has your current husband helped with your healing? Well, <laughs> it's very difficult for someone to, it took years for him to really understand uh, the amnesia and understand the correlations between just little things that um, he would do out of love, that the perpetrator would do out of control, that I have to recognize the difference between when he would, you know, he had to be very careful around me. Like he's, he knows now, don't just walk in the house. He always let me know, babe, I'm coming in the house. Or, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, he, he had to learn little things that would cause me to lock, to shut down is it was uncontrollable. And so talking him through years of being a partner and an understanding, and I tried to push him away, not only because uh, my children, you know, what they've been through, but I had my special needs sister that was, you know, that at the time was, you know, diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. I had a special needs that was left behind from my parents. I was having her with me. I didn't want to bring a man into all of my pain. And he was saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here to love you. And my kids picked him. My special needs child picked him. My dog picked him. And my ex picked him. My ex family picked him. You know, I was like, what is it with you do? What did they see? And he's proven himself to be justifiable. And he's wonderful. He's a Christian. You know, he's um, he's 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 a dream. Nobody's perfect. You know, I have to put him across my knee every now and then. But he's not fussy. He's not, you know, I'm the one that's the fussy one in the relationship. Uh, he's patient. Um, and, you know, I tell people when they meet my husband out that he's the same person behind closed doors. There are no surprises. Hmm. So what made you choose a film company? For well, I have been speaking. You know, I started out in film in Atlanta right after, you know, even while I was a hostage, we was on a movie called kids like these, Tyne Daly, and my perpetrator, the perpetrator was sitting behind her. Uh, on that set, he had a gun the whole time to control me. Um, but even as a hostage, I was on movie sets. And then after that, um, an agent, Devoit, saw me and she said to her, at that time, Barbara, at that time, she says, I have a film that's coming up, Robocop 3, and then also In the Heat of the Night was starting, and she wanted ethnic talent. And I thought she meant people from where I was. So I was bringing up people from where I was. And uh, so we started working together. I started assisting her as assistant casting director. And then when I moved and then I started my own talent agency called Talent Express. Real where, you know, Talent Express with talent personnel. So I started a talent company in Atlanta on my own with a group of people that got me around about. So amnesia was no excuse to not <laughs> sign independence. And uh, so I started a film. I started my own company in Atlanta, talent, talent agency. And then I came to Birmingham. That was nothing. So I ended up writing Annihilative Innocence, my book, and I ended up traveling around the country as a speaker on the radios and everything like that. And I was everywhere. And then I was like, oh, oh wait, I told my husband, I said, I know film. This is what I want to do. I want to tell people stories in my talk show 
And I started out with Living True and Truly Living, where real people tell real stories about real issues. And my first interviewee was a young lady by Jan Reed, uh, Jan Gavon Reed, that I talked about her son who was murdered by his best friend. Mm -hmm. And then on after that, I kept doing stories for a while. So uh, as my child got worse, I you know, focused on the movie, uh, The Prayer. Uh, and when she died, you know, I just had to then COVID hit. So right now we're in still in development on doing the movie, The Prayer. And I'll be meeting with my crew coming up very soon to get us back moving again with doing The Prayer, the movie. Yeah, COVID has certainly impacted the film and uh, theater industry a lot. But it also has opened doors for other people, many other people that have been trying to get films in as many so because don't get me started. That's a whole nother subject. But, <laughs> but it, it really opens your eyes on many different ways now that you can do film and television and radio and blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's so many apps and things now people are using. There's blogging, there's blogging, there's this and that and dithers of things I can't remember the name of. Uh, but yeah, there's so many ways now that you can tell your story if you want to tell your own story and bring it to life to someone, you know? And one of the things I try to do with my story and uh, my book, Annihilated Innocent, we can still be getting on Amazon, gotten on Amazon uh, is try to get tell people the truth and anything they research on this, they'll find out this book is the absolute truth, but it's also Christian driven because I believe in the power of prayer and I believe that God doesn't make mistakes. That all I've been through, there has to be an answer and I don't I think a lot of people want to get blessings they want to be blessed but they don't want to go through the fire they want to say, look don't just keep the fire over there I don't want to go through any trials I just want to bless you know just give me the car give me the house give me the, you know but they don't want to go through any trials and tribulations to get a blessing yeah and choosing the film industry is is I mean let's I've worked in media so it's not an easy place to be you're always <laughs> You're all even if you have your own company, even if you're you're successful, you're still perpetually unemployed, really, because you're always looking for new work. <laughs> oh, let me tell you some stories about that as well. But you know, it's a, but to be in media, whether it's in uh, film or radio, television, whether you're playing out, you know, out there being an MC for different things that's happening out there, football games, baseball games, you get a it's a it's a it's an internal part of you because you're an artist. So if you're an artist and you're a creative person, you always find another way to use that creative ability. Some people put it in a trunk and forget about it. But me now I'm trying to, I've written over the years so many books that I'm trying to get out, you know, little at a time. Um, because, you know, when you've been locked away and having to live your life with someone else, you can still be creative. You may not, it may not hit the airways. It may not, you know, be out there and be big. You may not live in the mansion. You may not drive to find cars, but you out there doing what you love to do. And, and that's what I kept doing is what I love to do. I love to write. I love to speak and, and I love to entertain people, you know? So in little ways, I was able to help people do what their dreams are while I could not live to do mine. So I would have little meetings in my house, little minuet, little teaching classes where it's one-on-one, maybe four at a time. And I would teach people about the industry that I love so much so that they can go out there and reap the rewards. And I can sit back and know that I've given these people good advice. They have become successful. And I'm not asking them to look back at me and say, well, you know, to hear Monique Brown, da, da, da. No, I want them to just go. Once I teach them, just go and do and be the success that God wished you to be. He'll bring me along in my right time. Awesome. So 
of all the people you've talked to and all the interviews that you've done, is there anything you would like some the others to know about you that you have not been asked yet? Well, I think the, the biggest question that I think no one has asked me about was how do I deal with amnesia and how do I function? Um, one of the things I'm surrounded by is by people that love me. Uh, when I first got out of the hospital, there was several guys that, you know, got to know me and wanted to be in the film industry. So I would get on my sets and I'd do my work, but I would get lost, you know, all the time. I call it, you know, and I still deal with that. And I, being surrounded by people that love me in spite of me uh, and people that learn that I have the condition, uh, embrace me and don't push me away. I've had some people, you know, mistreat me and try to test my abilities. But, you know, at the end of the day, God gave me these abilities. These abilities didn't come from any class or anything like that. They came from real life trials and struggles and being on real live film sets, things I've learned in the movie industry, wanting to learn, embrace the, the knowledge that I needed to have. And, you know, I learned forward. And what I don't remember in my past, I struggled. I used to struggle to try to remember. But I realized one one of the therapists that worked with me in the hospital says, think forward, think life forward. And anything that needs to come along with that will come along with that. And, and that's and that has been true is I think life forward. And I even tell people now, think life forward. And that's the thing that uh, a lot of people have a harder time asking me about is how do you live with amnesia? Well, I live with it. I live with a, an affliction that no one can see. I've, you know, I've had friends that are shot, friends that are burned, some that are in wheelchairs. But when we all come together, we're all in the same house together, uh, learning to live with the, the, the defects of life as some people see it. But I see it as power that in spite of all that we, are, we, we look like to others, we are powerful individ individuals and so we are better than people think. I am not, I am the nobody to help other nobodies become somebody special. <laughs> and when you don't insult me by telling me I ain't worth nothing, you ain't nobody, you'll never amount to anything. I'm more than that. I'm a child of God. Nice. Oh, God. I, you can't end on a better note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this You're interview. Welcome. It was everything I expected it. Thank you Thank so you. much. I hope I helped somebody today. I hope so too. Hey, Jen, we need to sell our home. Do you know a great agent? I do. We just sold with a local Redfin agent. It was awesome. And we paid a 1% listing fee because we bought our new home with Redfin, too. Wow, 1%. Are Redfin agents full service? Totally. Our Redfin agent did it all, and we sold for thousands more than the home next door. I'll check out Redfin today. 1% listing fee when purchasing with Redfin subject to minimums, terms, and conditions. Does not include buyer's agent commission. Learn more at redfin.com or call 844-759-7732.